Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are going to return to discussing one of our favorite books. We've discussed this book uh, many times on our previous show, The Truth Perspective, that is Political Ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky, written originally well over a period of many years, but in its final form in 1984, 1985, but only published in 2006. So for those of our uh, new viewers who may not have uh, listened to the Truth Perspective previously, I'll just give a short introduction. Um, just a note that we will be putting up eventually, you know, sometime in the near future, hopefully, um, all of our old shows on Ponderology. Uh, they don't have video, so we'll just be throwing them up on YouTube with some background images, um, just so they're all in one place, so uh, you can check those out after the fact. So we've discussed uh, several of the chapters in the book, various of the topics that uh, <coughs> Lobachevsky discusses. Today we're going to look at uh, Chapter 5. And that deals with what Lobachevsky calls pathocracy. So um, just to, to give a little bit of background, Ponderology was Lobachevsky's attempt to describe what he experienced in the, um, well, in Poland, um, communist Poland specifically, um, with also, you know, some reference to, um, like, Nazi Germany and World War II. But primarily the rise of communism and the effect that had on uh, not only the Soviet Union, but all the countries that were, he might say, like infected by the communist ideology and system of government. And he chooses not to call such a system of government either communist or totalitarian, um, but to come up with a new word, pathocracy, because he argues that the most important feature, the most important um, way of understanding and explaining such a system of government is through psychology. So in that he has um, something in common with Jordan Peterson, who, um, you know, if anyone follows Jordan Peterson or has listened to any of his lectures uh, on these topics, knows that he doesn't regard political analysis as kind of like the be-all, end-all of coming to terms with, um, you know, phenomena like, you, like, you, we, like the world saw in the Soviet Union. And of course, not only then, but uh, in several of the the kind of uh, totalitarian systems of government in the 20th century, but also in history, you know, uh, when we just look back at history and try to understand what was going on and why things happened, he said, well, political an analysis will only get you so far, same with economic analysis. So if you're looking at everything through an economic lens, you're going to have a uh, like an impoverished view of what's actually happening. Because to understand human movements, human organizations, social structures, you need to have um, ideally, you know, an accurate understanding as as good as possible, um, you know, as as good a possible, as good an understanding as possible of the human individual, of human psychology, and that means human psychology in all its variations. Because if you just assume all humans are correct, and you take the you know one or two parameters, and you say all humans are like this, you're going to get a um, again a really um, inadequate framework with which to look at these phenomena. So as a clinical psychologist himself, as a psychotherapist, he, um, you know, he would argue that um, thanks to the, the education system in, in Europe prior to the communist takeover, that uh, he had uh, you know, a pretty good grasp of, of human nature, at least better than the communists did, and arguably better than uh, um, you know, psychologists, Western psychologists today have for numerous reasons. One, like he said, that um, luckily at the time, um, this would be in the 
what the like the 30s and 40s that there had been um, a lot of good Eastern European um, psychologists and psychiatrists who had looked at um, psychopathology in a particular way, personality disorders in a, in a particular way. And when the communists took over, those were some of the first books and ideas that were essentially banned from the universities that couldn't be taught. And so luckily, like, Lobachevsky, like, graduated, what, the year after the, the Communist Party, um, you know, took over in Poland. And so he had, he, he was in the last generation of, of psychologists there who, who had been instructed in, uh, you know, that old school. And right away when that happened, you know, this academic community, the community of uh, psychologists and, and uh, sociologists and related fields, kind of had a, an inkling that something something was going on in the country that at its root was psychopathological, that um, <clears throat> what they were seeing was like a macro-social phenomenon, uh, like a, a widespread social phenomenon that could be explained and understood in terms of the, like the things that they were teaching, the things that they knew about psychopathology. And so for decades, Lobachevsky and numerous other colleagues, most of whom you know, remain unnamed, Lobachevsky didn't even know their names, they kind of operated in secret, and um, you know, he called it like a scientific conspiracy. They were, uh, were kind of like the underground research community that were um, like psychoanalyzing, but they, you know, they weren't psychoanalysts, but um, analyzing the, the system, the, the people in charge, uh, through the lens of uh, psychopathology. And so over the decades, you know, and, and numerous run-ins with the law, like, uh, like a lot of people, like I think even most people in the, like the Eastern Bloc, everyone knew someone who was arrested at one point or another, and Lobachevsky himself was arrested numerous times and uh, tortured on, a, on several occasions and um, eventually exiled um, from Poland. He, was, he lived several years in the United States uh, before moving back to Poland, um, and where he eventually died. So he wrote this book in the 80s in New York after having lost previous manuscripts, um, having to destroy them because of you know secret police raids and things like that. And so this chapter that we're going to be looking at is kind of, uh, it would be good to search out our Truth Perspective episodes on the, pre on the other chapters to get some background because some of what he says in here is kind of uh, um, dependent on those earlier ideas, but you know, we'll try to, I think any new viewers will be able to kind of follow what's going on um, regardless, and we'll, we'll try to give some background too. So like I said, this chapter is chapter five on pathocracy, the, the kind of social government system in its, uh, in its kind of um, final form. Because in previous chapters, he's, he described kind of stages in history and how, you know, history seems to, um, you know, ebb and flow. There's like highs and lows. And one of, the, one of the lows that societies, not all societies, but that some societies fall into is this one that he calls pathocracy, which is a totalitarian system of government that, uh, that affects everything from the, the, the lowest level of social organization to the highest. So from the, the top leadership positions down to like village functionaries and uh, you know, police chiefs and um, any kind of, any system in which there's a hierarchy, this any any such any any mini hierarchy within a larger larger hierarchy is like a um, like a fractal of the whole. It's like you find the same dynamic at every level, and it is if you've read any uh, anything about 
that, like uh, Solzhenitsyn, for example, then you have some idea of what life is like. Um, you could describe it as like a system of terror, coercion, censorship, um, like the, the kind of search for complete control over people's lives, um, and in a sense that touches their lives, it touches everyone's life. It's like no one, no one can remain outside the system, no one can, and Lobachevsky would argue, no one can even escape the reality of the system, like no one can be um, really um, like deceived or um, basically it, it, would, it would touch it, touch everyone of a certain kind and that would be the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people will have some inkling of what's going on and um, skipping ahead a bit, like a, I guess, a spoiler alert, there's a, there's a point in, pathoc in a pathocracy that Lobachevsky describes where, there, where it reaches a, a societal like polarization. And he's not talking about the polarization like we see in the United States, for instance, between like the left and the right, and we see like polarizations and dynamics like that in all kinds of countries, um, where we have like a division within the populace. What he's talking about is a division between the populace itself and the leadership. So you actually have a um, a uniting of the of of the people of uh, a nation in opposition to the tiny group of people who, like in the communist system, constituted the party and uh, the people affiliated with the party and the people um, you know, doing the party's dirty work. So there's actually this, uh, that's actually one of the, perhaps the, the positives of apothocracy is that it actually does unify the people against the, um, the pathocrats, as Lobachevsky would put it. So in this first section of the, of the chapter, um, we're going to be looking at, he covers what he kind of, tries to, to lay out as the three phases of apothocracy. So we'll be getting into those. But um, to give it just a little bit of, bit of background on like how Lobachevsky argues apothocracy comes about, is that he says the, 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 the main way in which it comes about is out of what he calls a, um, like a, a period of maximal hysteria in a society. So in a previous chapter, he described what he called like the hysterical or the hysteroidal cycle, that there's a cycle of hysteria in society that you can view, that you can see, where um, it seems like there's a cycle where um, you know, people have relatively good common sense for a period of time, and then uh, societal hysteria just increases to the point where, where like um, psychotherapists, for instance, or psychoanalysts like in the late 1800s, early 1900s would see a rise in the, the instances of actual like, cases of hysteria. And um, to, uh, like today, like we don't have, we don't seem to have the same kind of hysteria that uh, they had back then. Hysteria seems to take on different forms depending on like the, the culture and the time you're living in. Like back then, it was a lot of like hysterical illnesses, like um, like hysterical blindness or um, or like loss of the use of a limb. Um, and these are not not actual like um, physical problems with the with the people with individuals. It's like a a psychogenic illness, basically. So for some emotional reason, you might lose your eyesight. And uh, that's the way that hysteria was characterized back then. It's basically a physical symptom caused by an emotional disturbance. And, but we see similar things in, uh, in like the United States, for instance. So there have been several kind of like outbreaks of hysteria in the last 30 years. Like in the 80s, it was, uh, you know, like satanic ritual abuse. And in the 90s, there was like bulimia. I think it was in the 90s, like bulimia and... Um, multiple personality disorder, 
And like, if you compare the, the numbers for multiple personality disorder, like now compared to like back then, you'll see that there were way more cases back then. It's not like, the, it, so it, it's, we did a show on this actually on the truth perspective on social contagions and how a lot of these things are, uh, are, are spread um, by social contagion, emotional contagion. And so, so the, the actual manifestation of it might change from time to time. And uh, those are kind of some of the examples of, um, of things that have kind of cropped up in the last 30 years. And just recently, like, um, you, we can, well, I'd argue that there are, there are at least a few, like, indicators of the, the, the level of hysteria in Western culture today. Um, particularly in the U.S., for instance, there's the anti-Russian hysteria, there was, uh, um, and today, like probably on more of a kind of social level, that's more uh, like a, a, an hysteria that is kind of like infected the the kind of uh, like educated elite class of like media personalities and like the what you might call like the establishment like class. Like I don't think the majority of just regular people are are really hysterical about the the, the Russian menace, um, only to the degree that it filters down from the media. But something that is that is really filtering down to the level of like um, teens, for instance, is like you know certain forms of gender dysphoria, where um, um, like some researchers have basically argued that there are different forms of gender dysphoria, and one of them is basically a social contagion. That would happen when you have like a group of of young female friends, for instance, that all um, together like uh, um, are showing signs of gender dysphoria, and it I think they call it like rapid onset. Um, gender, whatever, um, but it's something that comes on quickly and seem and seemingly b because of social influences, because of peer influences, and um, um, well, primarily peer influences, but also like on uh, what's the that that website where it, there's a lot of stuff the, that kids go on. Not um, that old blogging website. What was it? I can't remember. The Tumblr. Yeah. So uh, I think I think it's Tumblr, but you know, one of those things. Like a lot of teens are on those, especially young girls, and there are a lot of um, kind of like uh, groomers uh, on there that are really influencing, um, you know, primarily young girls, but young young boys too. And it seems to be like another outbreak of social contagion. Another well, another example that we talked about on the show that we did on that subject was uh, suicides, because suicides tend to spread in a form of social contagion. So we gave the example of uh, this. You know, one high school in you know, Palo Alto, I think, and how there were there are suicide epidemics. So you know, one kid will commit suicide, and all of a sudden you'll get a cluster. And that's the way suicides tend to, to happen: is that you know, one one person commits suicide, and it influences a whole bunch of other people to commit suicide, and you get these clusters that that prop up. And especially if the person's like well known, there there are some cases of um, relatively. Um, you know, well-known celebrity-type figures who commit suicide, and that that uh, like that brings about just a huge cluster of suicides. And so there are various things that spread by social contagion, hysteria, um, you know, being maybe a catch-all for a lot of these phenomena. So, <clears throat> in these periods of like maximal social hysteria, um, that's the point at which Lobachevsky says that apothocracy could come about. Um, it's not that it always comes about. It's not that all periods of hysteria lead to a you know a totalitarian system of government, but it can. So there are other features that need to be taking place at the same time, you know, concurrently with the the period of hysteria to lead to this social breakdown and the the formation of an, basically an entirely new social structure. So um, what one of the 
kind of prerequisites that needs to be there, according to Lobachevsky, is that basically, um, like the overall level of reason and the the kind of the ties that make the social structure need to have degenerated to a certain extent. And in a in a in a in a situation of social hysteria, they do. And so this would be, for instance, like the period of time, um, you know, leading to the Nazi takeover in Germany or leading to the Russian Revolution, like a period of kind of societal chaos of a certain type, um, a system kind of breaking down but still there, um, you know, like the czarist system in, in Russia. And, um, and then like that, has, that hysteria naturally leads to a lack of reason, a lack of reasoning ability and the actual practice of reasoning in the, the population. And the, like, the combination of kind of those several different features creates the kind of perfect breeding ground for a totalitarian takeover. And the way that actually happens is um, through, um, well, primarily, like in its kind of pure form, it takes, it takes place through a, a revolution of some sort because revolutions are what tear down an existing system and replace them with a new one. It's just that in this case, there's, there are particular features of the movement that is doing the tearing down and the, and the piecing back together. And this leads to what Lobachevsky calls the spontaneous generation of pathocracy. And he uses those words deliberately because it seems like when you're observing these type of phenomena, it seems to be this, this thing that just takes place like organically. Um, it, it seems to be some kind of, kind of well, it's, it's like a disease process, but on, on like a social level, it's like a, he, that's why he calls it a societal disease. So what he does in the book is try to explain <clears throat> the features and how and why you know, it comes about. So before we get into the phases, I'll just read one quote from uh, from the first uh, bit of this chapter, just as a kind of just to kind of set the stage. So right at the beginning, he writes, "A psychologically normal, highly intelligent person called to high office normally experiences doubts as to whether he can meet the demands expected of him, and seeks assistance uh, the the assistance of others whose opinions he values. At the same time, he feels nostalgia for his old life, freer and less burdensome." burdensome to which he would like to return after fulfilling his social obligations. Um, I'll read another paragraph after that, but first, I'll, just a short commentary on that. Um, I think that's uh, that's probably the way, you know, most normal people feel, even if they're in a, put into a position of leadership just in their regular lives, like uh, you know, at work um, or um, you know, in on a on a, like a, a nonprofit board or something, some kind of volunteer work that they do, like the. Responsibility like that um, is feels like a burden, and um, and now when we look in and in terms of politics, it seems like the most of the people that go into politics are there because they want to go into politics for some odd reason. It's like they're they. It's not like it's thrust upon them and they and they have to you know cope with it and you know would rather be doing something else. It's like the chances are the in, in our systems at least and probably out throughout all of history, people seeking power are seeking it for a particular reason and seem to be fine with it once they get it. Um, but of course there are a lot of people who still, who are relatively decent and responsible and do, do view their own, like their own, um, like political life as a service and as a responsibility and, and as a burden. So like, uh, and especially like the best leaders, um, seem to do so like, uh, like Doug Harmerschold at the UN, that's like, he, you know, he viewed it as like the, the gravest responsibility and, didn't particularly like it. Like, you know, you could, uh, I think he, he liked the work and he liked, um, you know, um, 
putting everything he had into the work, but it was a like a great burden on him, and he he was looking forward to retiring and finally, you know, writing books and and uh, you know enjoying a, a regular life. But he devoted himself like a hundred percent, and unfortunately, in his case, um, you know, as is the case too often with individuals like him, was assassinated, um, you know, before he got a chance to retire. Um, and then you've got like people like you know even though he's demonized in the Western press like Bashar al-Assad in Syria, he'd never sought power. I mean, he wasn't supposed to be. He wasn't even ever supposed to be the president of Syria. It was supposed to be his brother who like died in a car accident or something like that. And it was basically like, okay, Bashar, it's like it's up to you now. And you know he was fine living his life as an ophthalmologist or whatever mm-hmm. he was. And uh, you know so he never had any pretensions to power and kind of got placed into it. And like um, you know, uh, state senator Richard Black, um, he's met with Assad a couple times, and he did a recent interview about a month ago, or maybe just a couple of weeks ago. Senator Black did, where he was talking about his impression of of Bashar al-Assad, and basically said that, um, well, first of all, the media has like a total mis. Anyone who listens to the media has a total misrepresentation of the guy. That when you actually meet him in person, like Senator Black did, that he's He's almost shy, like, and, and you can tell by watching the videos of him. He, like, he's a very, um, he's got a, a soft personality. Like, he, he's, he's a soft-spoken, you know, eye doctor, and who's been placed in this position and in a wartime scenario. I think the, the, the wartime scenario actually has kind of brought out some of his best qualities, you know, are, uh, paradoxically. Again, you can't believe everything you, you know, you hear about him. Um, that, and that, according uh, in Senator Black's opinion, um, Assad isn't like a, a wartime president. Like he doesn't like war. He would ra- he would much rather you know be leading over a peaceful country. He doesn't en- he, and and um, if not for Assad, the Syrian army and whoever else would have been leading would have been much more brutal. Um, and because of Assad, the the Syrian army is actually really reserved compared to a lot a lot of other nations engaging in warfare, like Saudi Arabia, for instance. But um, just to give a couple examples of like the, the you know the approaches to leadership and the the kind of just the personal um, like response to being placed in that position. Um, from there, Lobachevsky goes on. Uh, Every society worldwide contains individuals whose dreams of power arise very early, uh, as we have already discussed in previous chapters. They are generally discriminated against in some way by society, which uses a moralizing interpretation with regard to their failings and difficulties although these individuals are rarely guilty of them in the precise terms of morality. They would like to change this unfriendly world into something else. Dreams of power also represent overcompensation for feelings of of humiliation. A significant and active proportion of this group is composed of individuals with various deviations who imagine this better world in their own way, of which we are already familiar. So there he's he's referring to... um, like basically people with certain types of personality disorders. And we've, taught, we've had previous shows on those. Um, and basically the, like, the, the inner life of, of, of individuals like this is that they do feel different because they are. There is something fundamentally different about them. Um, they don't experience the world in the same way that uh, the vast majority of people do. And this is often, uh, like most importantly, like mo- most relevant is the emotional response. That uh, psychopaths, for instance, don't have a regular emotional response to anything. Um, at least not, you know, normal in terms of the way people experience emotions. And because of that, they they do feel, like, oppressed by society. They feel like society's out to get them. Um, it's unfair. They're mistreated. And, uh, 
um, they can't do what they want to do. They can't do what seems to come naturally to them and what they you know, feel should be their right to, to do, which is basically um, you know, live off of other people, be parasites. Um, you know, the worst of them you know, want to uh, torture and kill. Like the, the, this is where you get sadistic personalities and like serial killers and things like that, the, the, kind of the, the most sensational stories that you read in the news. And so from a young age, they realize they, that there's something you know, different about them. They don't really fit in. And they would much rather be the people in charge to create a society where they can essentially get whatever they want and essentially have the, the masses of people as slaves for them. And that is essentially what they, what they seek to achieve and what they end up achieving if the, you know, the processes that lead to a pathocracy all happen together and manage to take place. So um, I guess that's where I'll end uh, just you know, the short discussion or the short introduction to this um, before we get into the three phases. So uh, maybe before we go on, uh, anyone, do either of you want to say anything or, uh, or maybe go into the first phase? Well, no, I just wanted to touch on the, what you were discussing about uh, hysteria. And you gave a number of really good examples of hysteria and how it spreads throughout society like a contagion. And I just wanted to talk about the, the common denominator that kind of unifies all those different examples. And that's the possessive nature of the mental illness that causes all of these people to behave in ways that are irrational. And yet at the same time, like they were, you know, like they'd been just imbibing a bunch of alcohol, they don't realize it until they wake up from it. You know, you don't realize how irrational and self-destructive your behavior is until, you know, it's too late. And, you know, that's, that's a part of, uh, Lobachevsky says that's just a part of, of the historical cycle, but that generates, you know, various forms of evils, but that is itself, it's not exactly the, it's not the same as the, as the, the phenomenon of the pathocracy, but it contributes quite a bit to the rise of pathocracy because you have to kind of look at this, uh, look at society in at least two different camps in terms of just normal people um, and, you know, normal human moral failings. And then the, this kind of this incompetence hierarchy, you know, this evil hierarchy that actually develops from an incompetence hierarchy that um, of people that, like you said, view the world radically different and yet when people become, you know, they, they live on cheap emotions and fetishes for so long and they see everything in this emotional, from an emotional point of view, moralizing about everything, they, they, they weaken their defenses, they weaken their, their, I guess you could say, moral and spiritual defenses so that the things that are said by, by others who are, for all intents and purposes, snake oil salesmen or just pure consciously evil... Um, they they are open to that that influence. They they open themselves up to believing, not only believing but acting upon the orders and the advice of people who, in any other you know uh, era of more healthy common sense, would be viewed as uh, you know irrelevant at best. You know, just you know, just like the the local drunk who, you know, whines about, you know, how every life is horrible for him. Um, and, you know, he's violent. He's going, always getting to fights. Well, when there's a huge crisis in society, you know, somebody like that who is decisive and, you know, has a quick answer for everything will all of a sudden get an elevated position in the eyes of, you know, just other ordinary people who 
don't know exactly who to turn to. Um, they don't know what's going on. There's, you know, if there's famine, there's wars, there's strife, all these things that contribute to maximum uh, hysteria, uh, the hysteria in society, they, they leave the opening for, you know, all of these you know, pathological individuals to, um, to make their way into forming a, a pathocracy. That's where they, you know, like you said, it just, they kind of spontaneously just join up, you know, like they all kind of, they search each other out, they form, they, cause they know, you know, what they want in some way, you know, at least, and like, I'm, we'll be, we'll get into the actual differences between the different phases, but there are different types of, of individuals. There's, uh, you know, just useful idiots. There's people who, um, who really do believe in, you know, whatever kind of ideology or simple beliefs, simple answers that they, that they've been told or that they've heard people who really do believe in that. And then you've get people who are, you know, in the, in that, evil hierarchy who are just good at brutalizing you know they they uh they're just sadistic and you know it, you need somebody to turn to in order to to shape up a village then you turn to them and they're just they're just good you know serial killers really and they're useful in that sense um and then you have individuals who are are good at uh at spellbinding other you know and and rallying people spreading the the contagion and you have, like you said, you have the, just the purely evil psychopaths. And the each, at each phase, um, they, they all play different roles. And it's really, it's fascinating when you read this chapter to get an idea of kind of the sociological evolution of a pathocracy and, uh, and an explanation, really, for why it is that we saw uh, several develop, you know, the, in the, you know, Stalinist Soviet Union and with the Nazis, you, you see how these pathocracies formed, and it explains also why they acted the way that they did. You know, because you can see very different pathological personalities in the leaders of, of both um, the, you know, Nazi uh, Germany and the Soviet Union. And when you can see their different forms of pathology, you kind of get an idea for why things turned out differently for each uh, for each group, you, it, you really need to factor in that dimension of why, how they were crazy. You know, like you look at Stalin, he was, he was crazy. He was an absolute dictator, an absolute workaholic dictator, you know, who, had, who could have absolutely no heart and murder thousands and millions of people. But you also see, um, you know, how he, he crafted or he learned lessons from, from Lenin and Trotsky and all the others and was a political, uh, you know, a snake and able to craft a system that survived for decades based like on terror. Too. Huh? He was good at it. He was arguably a genius at it too. Right. Yeah. So that's where you get this hierarchy of evils that there's different different competencies, I guess you could say, that these individuals need, that this whole system as a whole needs in order to last for that short amount of time before it, you know, it basically implodes from its own incompetence. Well, Corey, you mentioned uh, one of the roles in this pathocracy as being that of a spellbinder. And um, I couldn't help but reflect on what we've been seeing in the rise of Alexandria ocasio Cortez and her Green New Deal movement when reading this uh, chapter on pathocracy. Uh, she's young, attractive, charming, and seemingly out of nowhere takes center stage to 
put in in the minds of many people the 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 grand social solution to everyone's ills in terms of uh in terms of equality and uh environmental concerns among many other things and if if you look into um what this is based on agenda 21 and this kind of uh global um uh range of policies that seeks to regulate and transform society on every level uh it seems like this kind of um on the surface of it anyway this this soft power uh legislation of of a pathocracy where the oppression would be coming about um in well these things are, are always presented as as good for the people uh and and for the greater uh amount of people who are suffering in one way or another. Um, but on every level, if you pick apart these policies that, that she's been advocating, uh, that she's been the, the new kind of spokesperson for and showman of, um, you know, you'll see very much that, that she, you know, fulfills this kind of spellbinder role among many on the left who are looking to her as this, this new figurehead. Uh, and it's very interesting. She there, there's this whole kind of um, uh, per, uh, this cult of personality that she's buttressed by. Behind the scenes, uh, there's an individual named Sekat Chakrabarty, who's kind of the the silent partner who who you know in the in the wings of the whole um, movement of the whole Green New Deal has been creating these um, brand new Congress and, and, uh, and various other new democratic organizations that are decidedly meant to thrust people who, who uh, subscribe to this ideology into power, in, into Congress, into the Senate. They have a whole plan for this. And, and she was really one of these... Uh, people who were handpicked by Chakrabadi and his entire little cadre of uh, of political um, apparatchiks. So uh, he's been behind the scenes. Uh, he's a Silicon um, Valley uh, millionaire, basically, who made his career uh, designing software, and uh, and so he's self-made. Um, not six or eight months into uh, forming some of these organizations, he's already being accused of funneling money uh, out of the the PACs, uh, the donations. Uh, so there's already this kind of gray area of intention. And um, he's, <laughs> it's interesting, in, in one of his interviews, uh, he's wearing a t-shirt of an individual named Subhas Chandra Bose, uh, who's an interesting figure. Uh, or was in the 30s and 40s. Uh, Bose was an Indian nationalist who gathered, you know, ostensibly he was trying to fight colonialism in India um, against the British, but made alliances with the Nazis and had sympathies with Stalin's Russia. And finally, uh, he had a, a group of three or 4,000 nationals in Germany who were working with him, and um, and basically, you know, as as the biography goes, uh, 
he had turned his back on them um, and ultimately slipped away uh, aboard of a submarine to go to Japan, where he thought he'd get more political support. Um, this left the men he had recruited leaderless and demoralized in Germany. So I just thought that this was a very interesting uh, person for, um, for Chakrabarty to hold up as a, as a kind of a ideological leader, uh, as someone uh, who inspires him to, to be a proponent of Agenda 21 and, and other of these, uh, these socialist uh, policies that, um, that AOC is a front man for. Uh, and, and the fact that he would leave you know, his people high and dry, um, or rather his, his point of inspiration would, reminded me of uh, a quote from Lobachevsky that, um, that sort of described this whole phenomenon. Um, there's something called schizoidal psychopathy. And uh, what Lobachevsky says is that schizoids are hypersensitive and distrustful while at the same time pay little attention to the feelings of others. They tend to assume extreme positions and are eager to retaliate for minor offenses. Sometimes they are eccentric and odd. Their poor sense of psychological situation and reality leads them to superimpose erroneous pejorative interpretations upon other people's intentions. They easily become involved in activities which are ostensibly moral, but which actually inflict damage upon themselves and others. Their impoverished, impoverished psychological worldview makes them typically pessimistic regarding human nature. So, um, you know, and I think the key, the key here, or one of the keys here, is they easily become involved in activities which are ostensibly moral, but which actually inflict damage upon themselves and others. So they you know, they become part of or lead organizations, which on the superficial surface of things uh, seems designed to help others to be of benefit to, to society at large. And uh, ultimately, because they lack this, uh, this fuller psychological understanding of people and of the depth of, uh, of, of their policies and how they will affect things, they tend to screw up things more. Uh, so that's exactly what I see, um, at least in potential, uh, with, with AOC and, and her Green New Deal. And, um, you know, even if she's not meaning to, even if she's well-meaning, she has become a part of something which I think, if allowed to follow its, its natural course, its, its end, without opposition, without people... Uh, speaking up further on, on how these policies can be destructive, I, I, think, I think it'll be a pure disaster for the U.S. Well, just in regards to the, the Green New Deal, I think that it is, you do see this, uh, this phenomenon in, I think, the Green New Deal and the kind of impoverished worldview that went into creating this and pushing this as legislation. But I also see it you know, a positive sign that it was just laughed out of Congress by so many people mm -hmm. that we're, we still are at that point where there's still enough common sense that you can see, you know, this schizoidal I uh, idea and it's not just taken as legal tender. Like 
um, you know, like in in the a place uh, like the uh, I'm thinking of, of of you know Russia before the Russian Revolution, where you, okay, Marxism, Communist Manifesto, all right, let you know everybody's on board, you know, even if it's illegal, let, let's all do this. It, why not? It it can't be any worse. Things can't get any worse, right? But um, just in terms of like that, like you were talking about schizoidal individuals, um, the uh, it reminds me of the agrarian socialist revolutions that were carried out in Russia in the 19th in the 19th century uh, before Marx even you know was even a thing you know there was this large push to to reform Russia and to make life better for everyone by you know arming the peasants and educating them and all of these socialists thought the the best way to you know to do this and to bring down the evil empire was to assassinate thousands and thousands of of you know czarist officials and russian officials and that's what they did but the backlash against that was the imposition of a police state that then left uh stalin with all of the recruits and the 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 infrastructure that he needed to effectively impose his own his own police state so you see how this the schizoidal uh the schizoidal worldview of how can we you know save the world Mm -hmm. oh you know what let's kill the evil empire this fed directly into the um a, a situation that was incomparable in terms of the suffering that was that was impacted on the on the Russian people, suffering that they're still you know still reeling from mm. as a culture. Well, j- just one last point on that um, Green New Deal. Uh, you said that there's a certain number of like it, it was actually voted down in Congress. It, it hasn't been taken as legal tender. What's so maniacal about this plan is that in anticipating such a rejection, uh, the people behind this whole movement have actually gone directly to, um, you know, the expression, um, think local or, or act local, think global, act local. So they've gone directly to the mayors and the towns across the U.S., and they've created these action plans, these community action plans that are supposed to get people involved at a local level so that they can ultimately overturn any kind of federal uh, oversight on this, so whoever's whoever's thinking about how to push all this stuff through uh, is is absolutely um, Machiavellian in in what they're attempting to do and how they're attempting to do it. And on that note, we can get into the if we want to the three stages of pathocracy. Well, uh, maybe just a couple comments on that discussion so far. Um, well, it actually. Um, is a good lead into the first phase because you, you brought up a couple of points like the well the idea of spellbinders and, and schizoids. So I just want to give a little background on that. In the show that we did on, um, I think it was we it was titled something about how what Mega Hat Kid can teach us about something or other, and we we talked about that that section in Ponderology um, about spellbinders. And I just say like. I, ha- I think that AOC has the potential to be a spellbinder. I don't think she is one, though. I think she's just a, spokesp- a spokesman who doesn't, who happens to not be very smart. Um, like the guy that we were talking about, like the the black Hebrew nationalist, he that guy was a spellbinder. It's like spellbinders in the like in the context that Lobachevsky is describing them are um, they've got a bit more brutality to to their spellbinding. It's like there's there's a there's a suggestiveness in in the the way they 
put the ideology into action that is uh, like essentially a call to well in in the case of pathocracy a call to violent revolution but there's there's just that like that hint of and even not even necessarily a hint often like the explicit call for like something like really extreme <clears throat> whereas in any kind of politics you're going to get pr people spokesmen people pushing policies good or bad and who can do it rel you know relatively well uh you know better or worse um there's an extra thing on top of that when it comes to like spellbinder level stuff where it's like um that would so that's why i say she has the potential to be because if like you know if if the the kind of seeds of this ponderogenesis like the genesis of evil political evil are allowed to kind of uh progress further you know could you imagine you know a aoc being at like the the vanguard of um you know calling for you know taking off the heads of the of the rich it's like well maybe um i don't know uh, by then they they'll probably find someone else but uh but that's the lead into the the first phase of pathocracy because um um you mentioned the the idea of schizoids and lobachevsky calls it schizoid psychopathy you know today in the west we'd call it like schizoid personality disorder basically it's like a in the show we did on personality disorders, if we look at it in terms of like big five, I think that schizoids would be like a, you know, relatively um, um, like a lack of, um, well, in introverted and unemotional, basically. That's the kind of way I, uh, I, I figured out how to, how to say it. So, um, so because of their like, the, their lack of um, like affect to the degree that, you know, most people have it, and their kind of introversion, the way Lobachevsky describes it, is that they come up with um, like these grand doctrines. So, like last week, we were talking about uh, Marx, for instance, and his kind of like the hints of his own schizoidia. And they they're the ones that, like you like you said, with this guy, you know, they they come up with the the theory of how to fix everything. It's like, well, they can see what's wrong with the world, and they, you know, they they do they have that link with with um, you know the the majority of people with a you know more um, more normal affect, more no normal emotionality, is that they, they do see problems with the world and they do want solutions. The problem is that because of, the, because of that lack of affect and they, that lack of like a, a deeper understanding of human, the, like the wider sphere of human nature, they come up with bad theories, theories that, aren't, that can't be implemented because of the, you know, the lack of the, the understanding of the way humanity actually works. So they come up with grand theories, with often with a simplistic, like a simplistic narrative and a simplistic um, um, idea of what it is that can fix the world. And so, you know, communism is a great example. It's like uh, um, you read Marx himself, and there's a lot to it, but the the ideas themselves come down to something very simplistic, like like viewing people as primarily like economic animals. And um, well, at least that's how a lot of people that try to implement Marxist ideas you know, see it. And so what you, that, that's kind of like the, the first phase of that, that contributes to the first phase of, of pathocracy where you've got these, um, these kind of psychologically impoverished and kind of eccentric individuals who come up with the, the theories, which form the, the seed of the ideology, which will then be used by the entire movement. And because, um, because they're identifying real problems and presenting what appear to be real solutions, they they can get massive popular support. 
Like that's why there there were a lot and and there still are a lot of communists, for instance. But especially you know before the Russian Revolution, it's like there were a lot of like socialist and communist um, like groups that were all supportive of the idea of a revolution. They might not have been happy with what they got, but the there was popular support for for movements of these sorts. And um, but what Lobachevsky points out is that the it's it's this ideology that kind of that allows the first phase to take place because um you know he, like we said in a previous show he distinguishes between primary and secondary ponderogenic unions which is basically a group of pathological people and the primary one is like just a group of pathological criminal people like you have with a a, a mob a gang um an organized network of criminality if you and like i pointed out in that show and like lobachevsky points out if you have a you know, a guy that's running on the mob ticket, like officially, like, you know, in an election, he's like, well, I'm, I'm on the, I'm in the mob party, you know, we engage in all kinds of shady, you know, business transactions and we, you know, we kill a lot of people and, and we tend, try to get away with it. No one would vote for that guy, right? It's not like people don't resonate with that kind of um, in your face pathology. But if, if you get a population uh, or a, a population, uh, a politician who is being secretly paid by the mob, who is, you know, pretending to be, uh, you know, a great guy, and he's he's looking for all these, all, all these policies to to help certain businesses and do all this stuff, and he appears like a normal guy. People will vote for him. So, a secondary ponderogenic union is a group. Um, it's basically a uh, a political group which appears to be above board that normal people can get behind. Normal people can say, "Oh, well, you know that those people are just like me. They won't want what I want, and and I, I'll I'll give them my support because I believe in their ideals." When actually within that movement, th that is just a front. Essentially, the, what they what they really want is something completely different. So it's the it's the schizoidal ideology that allows that to happen because that is the mask that is worn by that by a political movement of that sort. Like the in the communist revolutions, it's like people could get behind communism, they could get behind the revolution because there were real problems. Um, some well, some real, some perceived, but real problems that people wanted solutions for. They wanted a change, and it seemed like. This, these communist revolutions were a good idea. This will give us what we want. You can get massive public support, but the, the, the people actually behind the movement and steering the movement have different goals entirely. They're not, they don't want what, the, the, they, they don't want what the, their supporters want, and they don't want what their own ide ideology says it wants. They don't actually want uh, like a communist revolution to, to give power to the people. They just want a vehicle by which they can take power and then, you know, ex further exploit the people, the very people that were supporting them in the first place. And so um, the, the first phase is really the, de the development of this ideology and, and the, gain, the, the, the support it gains from, from the people and actually the formation of uh, a political and social movement. And um, so some of the points that Lobachevsky makes about it is that, uh, well, first of all, just because, um, like, the first mistake people make when like seeing reading and reading like the the output of individuals of this sort or you know engaging with this sort of ideology the first mistake is to take their ideas seriously because there will always be like a fatal flaw in in that ideology there, there will be something about it um as a result of that lack of understanding of human nature that will in inevitably lead to disaster as we see with like marx for instance so he he gives the the kind of I mentioned this on the last show last week, the, the kind of three reactions to an ideology of this sort. Um, 
um, so first there's the you know the rejection of the of the ideology and the reasons for that rejection and he he lists examples like you know just personal reasons like you might not like the people you might have, you just have personal reasons for rejecting it you might have um, like intellectual reasons for rejecting it you you don't agree with the the ideology for some reason you're part of a different camp part of a different school so it's like it's off limits or you might just be morally repulsed by it and uh, and reject it on those grounds. <clears throat> But like he, like I said last week, for a- any of these rejections, not understanding the the like the the reasons the like the most basic reasons why these ideologies are 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 bad or failure or will lead to failure, um, because they lack that understanding. Like there will always be a, a moralizing interpretation in these. So it's always like there's there's a um, kind of an there will be an irrational element in the the rejection of the uh, of the ideology. As opposed to like having you know good solid reasons at every stage and for every point, right? And primarily on the psychological reason. And then there's the 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 people that accept the ideology. These are the 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 popular support that uh, that the social movement gains. And he called that critically correct, critically corrective, because it's the people that say, oh well, I can agree with you know these points in in the system, and that, that's kind of good. Well, you know, I don't, I don't really like those other things, but but we can ignore the bad stuff and just focus on the good stuff, um, often to their peril, because the bad stuff is often what you know leads to every what. Well, the bad stuff is often what leads to the bad stuff. That's the stuff that ends up happening, or contributing to things that uh, or unintended con- un- unintended consequences, basically. And so the people that will kind of get behind a movement of this sort, he gives some examples like um, it appeals to people who are downwardly adjusted. And we talked about this in a previous show. So this is someone um, who's like overqualified for their job. You know, they can't get, they're not in a position that is basically um, in which they can kind of fulfill their potential. Um, they feel like um, they can be doing better things and they're just stuck in a bad job with a bad wage and can't like raise themselves up. And so that leads to like a, you know, a feeling of resentment and especially towards the people who are upward adjusted. These are the incompetent people who are in charge. And um, that, that's kind of like a breeding ground for this politics of resentment, which, uh, which a movement like, you know, like, a, like communist revolutionary movement appeals to it's like oh well we can tear down the the old order and you know i'll get what i deserve essentially I'll, you know a lot of young people um too will will get behind an ideology of this sort and um you know also people who are like socially neglected so these can be this these can be depending on the circumstances like minority populations um especially if if you're in a you know a country that is like a lot of religious and ethnic divisions um, you know, like last week, I think I talked about uh, various like regions in Russia, for instance, where there are various like you know it could be like twenty ethnic groups in one one region, and uh, a minority group might have have control of the region, and the and so the others feel um, um, neglected essentially. And so wherever there is a fracture between society, where, wherever there's an internal polarization, that can be exploited um, by, the, by a revolutionary movement of this sort, by a social movement that, uh, that wants change, wants, wants to redress you know, wrongs and make things more equitable and, um, and basically make everything good. So wherever there's, whatever, wherever there's a problem, you can get the people that are experiencing that problem as supporters because the, the ideology identifies the problem, says, yes, something's wrong. Um, and we know how to fix it. It was like, well, great. You know, what else do you need? So um, the 
but the third one is what he calls pathological acceptance. So these would be the people that are that ha essentially have personality disorders who look at the ideology and say, "Oh, well, that's a great way to get power," you know. And there are degrees in there which uh, which come into uh, into play in like phase two and three. But um, so this would be someone who joins the you know the Communist Party, for instance, because you know they know it's a it's a if if it's successful, it's a great ticket to power. You know, they can just ride the movement up to the very top, and they'll be the ones on top now. And so this is where we first see, like, people joining the movement who take the original idea, as pathological as it is and as inadequate as it is, like, um, it's still relatively normal people in that movement, just using, like, just adopting a, a bad ideology. And so you can see this in in movements everywhere, in every country, and, you know, uh, particularly in, you know, Western democracies and um, wherever there are socialist movements um, and communist movements, but others too, um, at the beginning, like, all the, the majority of the people in the movement are normal people. They're just, uh, they're just misguided. You know, they're, they're, they've, been, they've been duped by, by a, you know, a false dream of, of this utopia that, that can come about. And so you get people now. You get people joining the movement who are um, a bit more pathological. Um, and Lobachevsky would say this is when you start to get like the the uh, like people with paranoia, like paranoid personality disorder, and people with like um, um, you know some with like frontal brain damage who kind of like lack you know self control and the ability to like self reflect. And um, so more of the kind of um, Anti-social personality types that start joining the movement, and they kind of these would be the ones that end up acting as spellbinders and what he calls like brutalizing the concepts. So taking like taking Marx and making just a bit more of a brutal version of Marx, and they're the ones out in the streets um, like using the ideology to kind of call for a bit more violence, call for a bit more you know radical um, you know radical means of taking power. Um, the you know making starting to make some hard decisions, making some hard choices um, that need to be that need to be taken and need to be made f in order to you know for the success of the movement. And you can see this, for instance, in the well, you can see a version of this taking place in um, in like resistance movements, like uh, and like insurrections and and uh, well, not insurrections, but like well, maybe that too. But um, yeah, resistance movements to like foreign occupation, for instance. It's it's really easy for this to happen in in that type of scenario, like happened in Iraq after the the American invasion. You have a ton of Iraqis who are you know rightfully resisting like you know a foreign occupation, and well, what's going to happen then? Well, it's like you're already engaging in kind of guerrilla warfare. You're already kind of you've already left the realm of like normal society because you've been forced to in a sense. And so the 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 restrictions on you know what what is acceptable start to break down, and at that point it's like it's very easy for more pathological individuals to start influencing like a, a resistance movement and be like, well, you know, if we really want to make our point, we're going to have to you know kill all those people. <laughs> they might be innocent, but you know the we're doing it for a good cause. And we'll rebrand ourselves ISIS <laughs> or ISIL. Well, and that so that eventually happens and happened, and that would be like from a, like a, from a bottom up. That's that's how that's how that's how the 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 raw material was there. Raw material is there for 
manipulation by even like more pathological actors and even by like foreign governments with their own agenda. And it's like, well, here's something that we can use now. And so you get all of these external factors influencing what, what was originally like a, you know, a popular liberation movement maybe. Um, and, and so just look at the history of even in the 20th century of popular, popular liberal, what's the word? Popular liberation movements. It's like, it's, it's so easy for a movement of that sort that has a real wrong that they want to fix has a, a real grievance it's it's so easy to to pervert that into into just another form of you know oppression essentially yeah that uh that reminds me of i i've just i've been reading a lot on on the uh on the russian revolution and to what followed after the russian revolution and it reminds me of what was taking place when Russia set up the provisional government after the Tsar abdicated, and they basically uh, were like, okay, so now I guess we don't have a Tsar anymore, so now what are we going to do? It was in 1917, I think, 1918. And Stalin and other you know, prominent you know, Marxist, kind of Bolshevik uh, politicians were, in, were grasping for power, but they didn't quite know what to do with it. So they, they were thinking that they... Uh, they they had to create like a coalition with other socialists and other Marxists because one of the things that everybody, anybody who had any sense of love for their, their homeland wanted was to avoid civil war at all costs. That, that was just the general idea. The general political will was that we have all these soldiers returning, we have all of these problems, we have famine, we have uh, disease, we have ethnic strife, and... There, this is a powder keg. We have to, you know, form some of the coalition and just do whatever we can to avoid civil war. But then Lenin, on the other hand, was quite, he had a completely different idea of what needed to take place. And so rather than, you know, writing to Stalin and to the others to say that we, okay, so this is how we can form a plan with the other socialists and everything in order to, to, uh, to gain power, he said we need to we need to take the absolute revolutionary tack and we need to initiate that civil war essentially because in his mind, because Lenin was kind of, he was the archetype. He was the, that evil kind of genius, you know, that, that will to power behind it all. He knew, he knew how to pull the strings in order to get what they want because he knew what they wanted and he knew that what they really, they, what they wanted above all was power, absolute power. And so, the, and the only way to get that was not to share power with any of the other socialists, not to create coalitions, because then he, they they would be divided. You know, they would have to make concessions to other political parties. But instead, he hammered it home that it was time to increase the strife and increase the risk of civil war, and then take power as soon as he could. So then, that's what they did. They they began arming themselves. And, you know, I think a lot of people were disillusioned at that point. A lot, like we we're saying, and, you know, as these stages progress in the rise of a pathocracy, there's the, there's the breakdown between the adherence to the ideology with a human, a desire for, for the human well-being, and then the pathological mastermind kind of, you know, this archetypal evil that desires just pure power just to glorify the self and to dominate. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks like we've already gone like an hour for today, so maybe we'll just shortly cover phase two, and then uh, 
Uh, next week, we'll actually, we're planning on doing another show on this, so we'll get into fa phase three next week, and then some, uh, the next section in this chapter, which is just on some more features of pathocracy. So getting into, into phase two, just briefly, <clears throat> this would be um, where you, where the, the, the dominance over like the, the social political movement starts to be, um, starts to kind of change over to the, um, what Lobachevsky calls characteropaths. These would be, you know, you know, personality disorders of a certain type, but uh, he, the, the ones I just mentioned, like paranoia and like frontal brain damage and like kind of more antisocial types. And um, the, uh, this, so this is where you get the kind of more of the spellbinding activity. And this is kind of the, the first time where the original ideology starts getting transformed just bit by bit into like what Lobachevsky calls its pathological counterpart. So this would be the pathological counterpart is the point where the ideology is just a total mask that there, there is nothing genuine about the ideology and there is a, a, a total like uh, secondary purpose behind it. Um, like the ideology is just a Trojan horse for completely different motives and com completely different purposes. So uh, this is like, this has often been for me the, the, like the the tricky part is to to see that the the ideology itself like for all this for all this time leading up to this point it has been like genuine to a certain degree it's like you've had people who believed in it you've had uh, even a lot of the people espousing it are are kind of true believers and um they're not even necessarily um you know pathological to any great degree they just have a bad idea um but but as the the movement becomes more like more ponderized as it becomes more saturated by individuals with personality disorders, the actual contents of what the, the actual aims of the, the movement radically shift um, away from the original motivations. So like this is why I say like as, as pathological as you might think um, like Marxism is for instance, or any kind of ideology, like even like right sector, like a kind of alt-right or, you know, far right like neo-fascist ideologies, they're still ideologies. They still have. They're still things to believe in, as as far out as they might seem to a lot of people. Um, they can still get popular support because they appeal to to uh, emotions and to problems that uh, that that normal people can get behind. But this is where you start seeing that even that starts to be subverted. Even that. Uh, even even those motivations, um, which can have elements of you know violence and and even. Um, well, elements of, of power seeking and of um, uh, of resentment and and like all all the kind of negative things that we might associate with ideology. There's something else even even worse than all that behind the surface. That's what starts coming to the to the forefront in the second phase. So um, so the way Lobachevsky would describe it at this point, there there's still not yet even any mass criminal acts. Like there is still isn't yet any mass murder, for instance. That's to come in the third stage. So uh, maybe with there we'll we'll end it for today and uh, come back next week, and you'll find out what happens next in the in the, in the story of uh, pathocracy. So thanks, Corey, and thanks, Alan, for uh, for joining me and talking about this today. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>